Well, last week, uh, if you're with us, you know that we started a study on spiritual growth, and uh, this is a study that's been in my heart for quite some time, for a lot of reasons. Uh, for starters, we all need a series like this, kind of at different points in our Christian life. We're all trying to make progress, so we need the Bible's clarity on how that happens. And uh, James the Apostle says in James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. So a clear vision for how to make progress is crucial. Sorry, I'm a little, little too close to these steps. Slides back up a little bit there. Didn't know I could move that pulpit by myself, did you? Wow, you guys are not awake. They're all probably like, yeah, we're right. We didn't know he could do that. All right, so we all stumble in many ways. That's what James says. So a clear vision for how to grow in the Christian life is absolutely necessary. And our quest for clarity is even more urgent because of how much confusion surrounds this topic, even in the church. At best, we're often given an incomplete picture of the growth process. And at worst, we're led away from what the Bible says to rely on worldly methods for change. And as we would expect, that that confusion leads to a lot of discouragement. The saints of God are often plagued by sin patterns, and we don't know how to get out of them. Our circumstances are coming down on us. Our consciences are burning. We're often depressed and hopeless. Our usefulness to Christ is diminished. We lack joy. We're timid when it comes to evangelism. We start doubting God and the power of His Word when we suffer. We're tempted to turn to other fixes, which are only temporary at best. And most of it can be traced back to a lack of clarity around this very topic of how we grow. But we also saw some glorious news last week. And that news is this. If you belong to Christ, God is utterly committed to growing you. He is working everything in your life the good and the bad, toward this one glorious end, your conformity to His Son. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And that's because God Himself wants you to grow up, like we're saying in this series. He wants you to become a spiritually mature adult. And last week, we opened the series by trying to get our minds around this concept of maturity. So we asked questions like, what is it? How would we define it? And then we looked at some marks. How would we recognize it? What are some marks of a mature person? I'm not going to re-preach that, so it's online if you missed it, or I can send you my notes. But our, our goal is to become progressively more like Christ in our thinking, in our desires, in our actions. And that pattern of Christ's likeness, not perfection, that pattern is what maturity entails. And we want to do that because it's God's goal. And the great, great, great encouragement is that God Himself is committed to it. He's more committed to it than you are. He's so committed to it, in fact, that He has given us absolutely everything we need to make it happen. To make it a reality in our lives. He's given us Everything we need to grow in godliness, says Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 
Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at what God has provided to mature us. All right, so in the first week, we looked at understanding maturity, kind of getting our minds around what it is. And in the weeks to come, we're going to, we're going to look at what I'm calling the means of maturity. So, what has God provided to His church to mature His people? And we're going to cover this in four topics, or or what I'm going to call four means of maturity. And the first one, today, is the Spirit. As we're going to see, a human being's exclusive hope for change rests on the Holy Spirit. Without God's indwelling presence, we will not change, and we cannot change, in any lasting way. But with His Spirit, lasting change is not only possible, but it's guaranteed. But the Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. He's not just sort of zapping us. Okay, He uses something, metaphorically a sword, and that sword is the truth. A second means of God's maturing of us. The Spirit's fundamental work is helping us understand, believe, and submit to the truth. When we come to know the truth, the truth sets us free, Jesus says in John 8. And Jesus means that. The truth will liberate us from corrupting sin patterns. And it will do that as we learn to entrust ourselves to Jesus' words above what we think, above what we feel, above what we even want. And we will experience His joy in real, lasting change. But where's truth found? Where is it proclaimed? Where is it made visible? Well, it's found in the very place, the very temple that this Spirit resides in, and that's the church. The Spirit works through His Word in the midst of and through His people. God's truth comes to us in the church. We hear the truth in preaching. We sing it in music. And we see it in the ordinances. And God also intends us to grow through the people of the church as they come alongside us to counsel us with the truth, to help us trust and obey Jesus. In the church, we are equipped for ministry. We're equipped to mature. But His maturation process doesn't end in the church. It it extends to the world. Even though the world is hostile to Christianity, God uses the world, too, to bring us to maturity. As much as we don't like it, suffering and trials are part of what God uses to refine our faith and to deepen our convictions. The world is where we put our lives on display. It's where we're tested. And God uses it as a powerful means of growing us up to maturity. So that's where we're headed over the next few weeks. But today, I want to dial in on that first means of maturity. God's own spirit. I want to look at that in depth. When it comes to growing up, the very first thing we need to know is this. We must know that everything rises or falls on God's spirit. 
And in particular, we have to embrace three convictions about the Spirit. Three convictions about the Spirit that God will use to grow us up to maturity. Here's the first one. We've got to embrace that the Spirit is our only hope for change. He's all we've got. In other words, we've got to know deeply that if God does not initiate our growth, if He doesn't sustain it by His Spirit, then we're doomed. Worldly wisdom is not going to help us change. So let's take a minute and see why this is so crucial that humans possess God's own spirit if we're going to change. All humans, not just Christians. All humans must possess God's own spirit if they're going to change. Why is that? Well, notice initially that humans are spiritually deceived and ultimately do not know how to change. Humans are spiritually deceived and do not know how to change. We're going to be in a few different places today. After you finish writing that down, you can flip over to Genesis 3. Human beings are spiritually deceived, and we don't know how to change if left to ourselves. And that's why we can only hope in the Spirit. So, let's talk about this deception. You know this story well, no doubt. This deception started at the fall, back in Genesis 3. Our first parents were created in God's image. They were given a beautiful garden, teeming with life and potential. They were tasked to rule on God's behalf and to rule His world with wisdom that came from trusting His words. There was another path toward another kind of wisdom, in quotes. A path toward the knowledge of good and evil. A path that God had forbidden and promised would lead to death. So in Genesis 3, Satan comes to the woman, Eve, in the form of a snake, and he begins to twist the truth. He begins to twist God's words. Did God really say? And once Eve explains what God had forbidden, along with the promise of certain death, the serpent exclaimed, You will not surely die. Then he tempted her to doubt God's goodness. He tempted her to exalt herself, to grasp at God's status as the one who can define good and evil apart from him. And she fell for the propaganda. Before she ever ate the fruit, she had been deceived. And that's her own admission over in verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The deception led to the transgression. And this deception, I want us to look carefully at this, 
Because we're going to build on this. We're going to come back to it again and again in this series. And it's going to drive us to look only to God and His Spirit. This deception manifests itself in several ways in verse 6. First, there's there's a deceived assessment. As Eve buys into the lie, her judgment is impaired. It says in verse 6 that Eve saw that the tree was good for food. She saw, she perceived, she assessed that the tree was good for food. Good for food? That tree is poison. It's not good for food. It is death-inducing. It will not sustain life. That's what food does. But because of her deception, Eve wrongly assesses the tree. She is wise in her own eyes. She thinks she can determine good and evil apart from God and His Word and that she can set the boundaries where she wants them. Her deception led to a deceived assessment of that tree. And that assessment led to a deceived desire. Verse 6 shows us that. She says there that the tree was, quote, to be desired to make one wise. Since she wrongly assessed the tree as good, she began to crave its poisonous fruit. She thought she couldn't live without it. She thought she's got to get it. So, the deception led to a wrong assessment, which led to a wayward desire, which ultimately ended in a deceived transgression. This raging desire led her to, to do the insane, to commit treason of the highest order, to transgress the eternal king who had just created her. And her husband was no better. He stood idly by while his wife was being deceived and then passively took the fruit and ate it too. So they became transgressors. But notice it doesn't stop there in this story. There are also deceived solutions to the problem. These deceived humans do what all their offspring have done ever since. They keep compounding their sin by trying to fix it themselves or by trying to deny it in some way. Immediately they're ashamed. What do they do? They try to cover themselves with leaves. They try to make amends in that way. But when the Holy One shows up, they intuitively fear. They kind of realize the leaves aren't going to work and they hide. They try to flee from His presence. And then when they're questioned, the man in particular shifts blame away from himself to his wife. The wife you gave me, subtly to God. Now, why did I drag you through all that? Because I want you to see something. When a human, any human, has been deceived, when they cut themselves off from God, when they stop trusting His words and start trusting themselves everything goes to pot. Our assessments are really skewed. Our desires are all out of whack. 
we sin against God, thinking it's the good life, and then we try to atone for ourselves. We try to find ways to explain it away or silence our conscience to bury the guilt. So this means that if we don't have God, if we don't have His indwelling presence, then the only other option is deception, which leads to more and more corruption, not change. Our assessments about God and His Word are off base, and our solutions are too. So we desperately need God to tell us what's true. But sadly, our condition is worse than this. It's worse than simply being deceived, as bad as that is. This deception and transgression plunged us into a state of spiritual death. Humans, apart from God, are spiritually dead and ultimately unable to change. Human beings, apart from God, are spiritually dead and ultimately unable to change in any lasting or transformative way. And this is right here in Genesis. God promised that we would surely die. And He never lies. And at death, both spiritual and physical is what we see, was what we received. And that's left us with an inability to affect any lasting change. Paul echoes Yahweh's pronouncement of death in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, he describes what each one of us used to be before the Lord made us alive. And that's because he wants us to see how bad off we were so that we realize the great grace we've been given and the great power for change that's available to us in Christ. So here's Ephesians 2. You can see here that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul says that we were once spiritually dead. Verse 1. Without a spiritual pulse, we were not sick, but we were dead. He also says in verse 2 that this deadness looked like, we, looked like us blindly following the course of the world, meaning the path that the world laid out. Its values were our values, and we felt at home in the world. That's because we were also following Satan, the prince of the power of the air, Paul says here. You and I thought that we were free in our sin, but that couldn't be further from the truth. We all were enslaved to the dark Lord. But it wasn't against our wills. Paul says we acted sinfully because we wanted to, because of our own corrupt desires. It's not a pretty picture, but he says it was true of every single one of us before God made us alive. And it's still true of every single unbeliever today. You can look over in Ephesians 4, verse 14 and following for that. 
And this can only lead us to one conclusion for humans apart from God. In ourselves, left to our own wisdom, we are unable to change. We're not able to bring ourselves to life, to free ourselves from Satan or our own fleshly desires. We have no power. And over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that even when presented with the truth, truth that could liberate us and change a person, that fallen human beings won't be able to receive it. Paul says in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 2.14, that for the non-Christian, when left to themselves, truth will seem like folly. It'll seem stupid, unbelievable, not compelling at all, offensive, narrow-minded. Why is that? Because Paul says the truth is spiritually discerned. He means it's taught by the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. So, as incredible as humans are, as much as we've achieved through human history with technological and medical advancements, with art, with culture, when you pull back the curtains and look deeply into our hearts, what we find is appalling. Utter deception and utter inability to experience lasting transformation. So we can't look to ourselves to fix us. We must look away from ourselves, away from human wisdom, to the God who made us. And His Spirit is our only hope. And the biblical writers knew this. They consistently point us away from ourselves and they call us to look to God to provide what we need. And God did promise to provide. And that leads us to our second conviction about the Spirit. And that's this, that the Spirit is our promise, hope for change. He's the answer. Now you can think of this promise as a subtle whisper at first. And it grew louder throughout Israel's history. Kind of paradoxically, as Israel became darker and darker, it grew louder and louder. And eventually, this promise was shouted during her exile by Israel's prophets. And it became the promise of God to His people. So even from the earliest days after the fall, God was quietly drawing dead people to Himself. He was making them alive. He was changing them. And I say quietly because we don't have a lot of data about how the Spirit was working in the Old Testament. But apparently He was. Because from day one, Abel was faithful. Seth and his descendants called upon the name of the Lord. It's a very positive thing. Enoch walked with God. And that's a shocking thing, to walk with God outside the garden. Noah did too. And even is described as righteous. So on and on through the Old Testament, we have these little evidences that God is doing something. He's bringing people to life that were once dead. He's teaching people truth who were once deceived. And sometimes it's a lot of them at once. Think Nineveh, right? Yet on the whole, these were the exceptions rather than the norm for God's people. Israel consistently went astray. Just after she heard God's voice on Sinai, just after she received the truth of God Himself in HD clarity, what did she do? Ah. She erected a golden calf. 
worshipped it. The same is true throughout her history. The light of Check one, two. All right, back, back, at, back in action. Good. All right, so this would happen by God giving his people his own spirit. So consider Ezekiel 36. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. That's what we need. Heart transplant. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. How would he do it? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So, for the biblical writers, this, the, this promise was so grand, so glorious, so hopeful, that it became the promise. The one that everybody was waiting for. And it was this very promise that Jesus spoke about after he was raised from the dead. He told his eager disciples, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Notice that Jesus did not have to elaborate. Sending you the promise. When he said that, the disciples knew what he was talking about. It's the promised spirit who would transform the scared and self-seeking disciples into bold witnesses and self-sacrificing leaders for the church. That's because the promised spirit is also Power from on high, Jesus says. It's God's own power lavishly poured out on us to effect change. And that leads us to our third and final conviction about the Spirit. We could say it like this. The Spirit is our realized hope for change. You could say He's our present hope. It's not something we're waiting for, like Israel of old. Ever since Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the promise has found its fulfillment. God has been pouring out His transforming Spirit on humans who turn to Him in faith. And the same is true for every single believer in here today. So let's think about Pentecost for a second. 
and how it changed people. This power from on high was first poured out on the disciples in Acts 2. And the Spirit transformed these men from day one. Peter stood up and preached an incredibly bold sermon when days before he had lied to a slave girl about his association with Jesus. Actually denied the Lord. And it's not just true for the twelve, but after the Spirit is given to the first church in Jerusalem, they're described as utterly devoted to the truth and to each other in Acts chapter 2. They're generous with their resources. They fear the Lord. They have joy. They're willing to suffer. And these are all signs of the Spirit. They're all signs that God has taken out their heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. This is a very different Israel than we read about under the Old Covenant in Acts chapter 2. And in a few chapters in Acts, God won't simply limit His Spirit to Israel. He will begin to pour it out on the Gentiles like us too in Acts chapter 10. Now, when we pan out beyond Acts, we see that the Spirit's maturing work in our lives is quite expansive. When it comes to maturing us into Christ's likeness, no one is more powerful, no one is more influential, no one is more insightful or successful than the Holy Spirit. From start to finish, the work is fundamentally His work. And when we realize just how expansive the Spirit's work is in our lives, we're going to be encouraged like down to our toes. So let's take the time we have left and look at some examples of everything the Spirit does for us, to change us forever. And it starts with the reversal of that dead and deceived state that we talked about earlier. So we could say it like this. The Spirit enlivens us to trust Jesus. He enlivens us to trust Jesus. In the Bible, this life-giving work is referred to as conversion or the new birth, or regeneration. And it's performed by God. As Ephesians 2.4 says, he says, God made us alive. God did that. And from other texts, we see that it's also the work of God the Spirit. It's God the Spirit who, quote, circumcises the heart in Romans chapter 2. So, my point here is that God's answer for our inability, His answer for our deadness, is the regenerating work of His Spirit. He makes us alive, and He makes us ultimately responsive to God. Now, this is an incredible encouragement for everyone who has trusted in Jesus. If you've been humbled, if you've seen your sin, if you've repented and called out to Jesus for mercy, if you've trusted Him, guess what that means? That's actually a sign of spiritual sensitivity. That's a sign of spiritual life granted by the Holy Spirit. Your hardened heart would not respond on its own to God. Paul says the natural man can't do that. It had to be cut first by the Lord. Someone without the Spirit 
can't receive the gospel. The gospel doesn't make sense. It's only by the Spirit that we can perceive the truthfulness of Scripture and come to believe in Jesus. So what that means then is your spiritual sensitivity to Christ and to His Word is a sign that the Spirit has already enlivened you. And you can be sure then that He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. It's this truth that gives us ultimate hope for change, even if we feel defeated in sin in the moment. Why is that? Because God will not leave us here. Our growth resides ultimately on Him and not us. And that's signaled by the life that He gives us by His Spirit at conversion. But His gracious ministry to us doesn't stop there. It continues on to illuminate truth. The Spirit, He continues on to illuminate truth and He helps us apply it to our lives. He illuminates truth in an ongoing way. So that means He doesn't just give you the capacity to understand truth when He saved you. He did that. But He's also empowering you to continue to understand truth, to continue to apply it to your life over time. This means He'll help you discern the lies that you're tempted to believe, He'll help you learn to replace those lies with truth. And we see this over in Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18. There, Paul asks God to provide this ongoing illumination through the Spirit to the believers. Paul knew that the Spirit would continue to work in believers over time. He would continue illuminating more and more truth to them He would continue to help them apply it to their lives. You can jot down, if you want, in the margin, Philippians 3.15. He's calling for the mature to think a certain way in the church in Philippi, and he's like, God will reveal that to you. You know? This is almost a passing comment. But he's so confident that God, through his Spirit, would reveal things in time to the Philippian church. What a sweet encouragement to know that as we read truth, as we listen to preaching, as we sing, as we, have a, that we, as we do all these things, we have a divine teacher residing in us. The Spirit Himself is active in our lives, and He has pledged to help us understand and apply His truth. We will not understand it all at once, but He will guide us step by step, sermon after sermon, text after text, over time. He'll give us more and more insight into our hearts, into the lies of the old man or woman. And He'll give us more discernment in truth and into its application. So the Spirit continues to illuminate us in Christian life. He also helps us to kill sin. Did you know that the Spirit has a killing ministry? Paul says that he helps us put to death the deeds of the body in Romans 8. We might feel powerless at times over our fleshly desires, but the reality is that the Spirit within us is able to help us rise up 
over them. He'll help us deal that decisive death blow to them in the moment. And he helps us do that with his sword, the word of God. Satan wants us to think that we're still enslaved. But the Spirit's ministry is to remind us that we are not. And that the Spirit is able and willing to empower us to slay sin. It won't be easy. It certainly won't be painless. Death never is. But there is power, real power, available to us. God's divine power to mortify sin no matter how strong the temptation. And that is hope. Speaking of hope, the Spirit also empowers us to abound in it. Paul also says the Spirit empowers us to abound in hope. Romans 15, 13. What does that mean? Well, it means that the Spirit will not allow us to to stay enslaved to things like depression or hopelessness or despair. We may certainly go through seasons of darkness, and that darkness can be thick. But the Spirit is committed to empowering us to actually abound in hope. It means to have a surplus of it. And a surplus of hope means a surplus of joy as we learn to yield to the Spirit. But what if you're so discouraged? What if you're so hopeless that you can barely even pray and ask God to help you? Well, take heart because the Spirit prays for us. He prays for us. Paul says here, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In Romans 8, He helps us in our weakness, especially our weakness in calling out to God for what we truly need. Did you know that when you don't know what to pray for, the Spirit Himself is actively interceding for you according to God's very will? This means that even if you feel alone, even if you feel abandoned, even if you feel forgotten by others, that you have one intercessory friend who is always praying, who is perfectly praying and powerfully praying for you. That's the Holy Spirit. When you don't know the motives of your own heart, when you're unable to discern the lies that you believe, and you're stumbling around, you feel like you don't know how to even pray, take heart. The Spirit knows what you need. He has divine insight, and He's already been asking the Father right now to supply it to you. And the Father hears His Spirit. That is a tremendous encouragement. If that's not encouraging enough, the Bible also says that the Spirit will make you useful to others. That's because He provides us with the gifts, and He empowers us to use those gifts. He gives us gifts to use when we were saved, and then He empowers us to use them. At your conversion, as immature as you may feel, the Spirit has actually supplied you with powerful gifts. 
You can think of them as endowments for effective service. But not only did he give them to you, kind of like a giant Christmas present, but he's also sitting beside you on Christmas morning, instructions in hand, and he's helping you read those instructions and put the present together. Paul says the Spirit is actually the power behind the gifts that guarantees that they will be effective when we use them. <laughs> How encouraging is that? Man, I come in to preaching moments. I've told you this before. Feeling like that little boy who's got like fish and loaves. It's like, and sometimes if they feel, it feels like they have mold on them. You know? It, here it is, Lord. You've got to multiply. And that teaching gift I hear here is given to me by the Spirit. And the Spirit is empowering that gift for your edification. And the same is true for you. Every one of you in here. You've been given gifts to be used and the Spirit Himself gave them to you and He's energizing you in them. And finally, we could sum up His transformative ministry to us with this incredible reality. He is the ultimate cause, the ultimate source of all fruit in our lives. Galatians 5. Remember that giant list of fruit? Things like joy, peace, patience, love, self-control. Guess who is credited ultimately with their presence in your life? The Spirit. It's His fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's from Him. So what a comprehensive picture. What a truckload of encouragement we have from God's own abiding presence who has converted us and committed Himself to us to change us. There's no other hope for a human other than the gift of God's Spirit. And yet there's no greater hope either. With God, truly all things are possible, even our very transformation. So as we wrap up this morning, I know that was a blitz, okay? So what do I want you to take away from a message like this? Well, first, I want you to see the danger of trusting in ourselves for change. I want you to see the danger in trusting in other humans for change. I want you to see the danger of the self-help literature. I want you to beware of seeking out secular professionals, secular counselors to help us with spiritual problems. If they don't have God's Spirit, then they are deceived. And their assessment of your problems, along with its solution, will be short-sighted at best. And it will be destructive at worst. Unless they are depending on the power of the Spirit and the Word of the living God. That's the first thing. We need to see the dangers that are all around us. And second, though, I want you to realize the magnitude of the gift we have been given. The prophets 
longed to see these days. The days that we're living in right here in Boundless. The days when God would grant His Spirit, when He would pour Him out to transform human beings. And we are living in those days. It is slow, yes, but the fruit is abounding. And it's abounding right here in our ministry. People are changing. And it's not because of us. People are changing because of the very Spirit of God, because He is dwelling in the midst of His people. He's empowering us to change. And finally, I want you to have hope. I want you to have hope as we approach the change process in the weeks to come. I want you to abound in hope. I want you to have truckloads of hope. Even if you're stuck in sin right now, even if you feel like damaged goods, you can't make anything out of your life because of what's happened to you, the very opportunity to receive God's Spirit is a total game changer. He is available to any human who will humble themselves, who will confess their sin, and who will avail themselves of Christ and His Word. And for the believer, He will not give up. He will persevere with you to transform you because He's committed to you. And it's this kind of hope and only this kind of hope that's going to fuel us to keep fighting, to fuel us to keep growing, even when everything else seems stacked against us, including our own hearts. So we have to start here when it comes to change. We have to start with the power of God's Spirit, the gift of His Spirit available to us. And next time, we're going to look at what the Spirit uses to transform us. He uses the very words of the living God. He doesn't work in a vacuum. He doesn't just zap us. He doesn't somehow kind of move us without our involvement. No, He works in us and with us to come to entrust ourselves fully to the written word of God. We'll get there next time, all right? For now, let's pray.